Section 5 of Other People's Lives. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Other People's Lives by Rosa Nuchette Carey. Book 3 The Two Mothers. Chapter 1 The Mistress of King's Dean. If utter and complete dissatisfaction with one's environment constitutes unhappiness, Mrs. Compton of Kingsdean might be considered an unhappy woman. All her life she had strained after certain ideals and had failed to realize them, and the fruits of mediocrity that she had garnered in her life harvest, and which would have been riches and joy to a less aspiring and ambitious nature, were as the apples of Sodom to her fastidious taste, mere dust and bitterness. Isabel Compton never owned, even in her secret heart, that her lines had fallen in pleasant places. The metaphorical green pastures and still waters of a peaceful country life were arid desert and monotonous dullness to a woman who loved, above everything, the roar of traffic in Piccadilly and the jostling of a well-dressed crowd on its pavements. Any day she would have exchanged gladly the melodious warbling of thrushes and blackbirds in her own copses for the twittering of grimy town sparrows under the eaves, and even for the untuneful cry of the street vendor and gutter merchant. For like the gentle and witty writer of Elias' essays, she delighted in the din of a great city. Nature had intended Mrs. Compton for a life of action and responsibility. The wife of a leading politician would have suited her exactly. She had a clear head and a power of grasping any subject that interested her that was almost masculine in its breadth and directness. But her talents had never been utilized. If her husband had died bankrupt, for example, instead of leaving her a well-dowered widow with an only child, she would have set her shoulder to the wheel and work for her boy, and the name of Isabel Compton would have been mentioned with respect in the city. But Richard Compton had been a safe man all his life, and on his deathbed he smiled more than once at the thought that his wife would never miss one of her accustomed comforts. Nevertheless, almost the last words he said to her were full of a long-hidden and carefully repressed sadness. Isabel, my dear, you have been a good wife to me, and I have loved you dearly, but I ought never to have married you. You would have been happier with another man. And though she had contradicted this passionately and with bitter tears, in her secret soul, she knew that Richard had spoken gospel truth. Strangers always wondered where Mrs. Compton had got her dark beauty, but there was Spanish blood in her veins. Her mother had belonged to an old Andalusian family, and her father had been a Highlander. When Richard Compton first met Isabel MacDonald at a fancy ball at his father's house, he fell desperately in love with her. She wore the fet dress of an Andalusian peasant, and the crimson roses in her laced bodice and in her glossy black hair were scarcely more vivid than the brilliant color in her cheeks. Excitement, and perhaps the consciousness of her own bewitching beauty, had added to the luster in her eyes, and many were the envious glances that followed Richard Compton as he carried off the acknowledged belle of the room for another and another dance. 
Richard Compton had plenty of English pluck and the proverbial tenacity of the British bulldog. When he wanted a thing very badly, he generally got it. And if genius consists in the capacity for taking infinite pains, it must be acknowledged that he possessed some sort of genius. His courtship was as impetuous as the charge at Balaclava. And before she had quite made up her mind that she did not dislike him, Isabel MacDonald found that she had promised to marry him. But perhaps those days of their engagement were the happiest in her life. Richard Compton was well-born and well-connected. Although he was only a colonial broker in Mincing Lane, and he was handsome and athletic, and had good health and an easy temper, most people who knew him well thought him intelligent and lovable, and he transmitted these virtues to his boy. He had plenty of business capacity and liked the shop, as he called it, and it galled him excessively to know that his wife despised it. Isabel's chief grievance was that Richard had no ambition, that he did not care to stir out of his groove when he grew rich and began rolling the golden ball, making his pile, as the Yankees say. He had no desire to shunt business and lead the life of a man of fashion. On the contrary, his one yearning was for a country existence and a model farm. This was the rock on which their matrimonial ship foundered. They were a strangely ill-assorted couple. Richard Compton loved his beautiful wife with the still deep affection of a strong nature. He would have brought down the stars from heaven if she had desired them, but he could not alter his nature. When a husband and wife love each other tenderly and yet do not agree on any single point, there must be some degree of friction between them. Richard's father and his grandfather had been potentates in Mincing Lane. The old gray-haired clerks had known him from his boyhood and still spoke of him familiarly as our Mr. Richard. His father had built Kingsdean and had spent the latter part of his life very happily in beautifying it and laying out the grounds. But it was Richard himself who added the farm and the long range of cattle sheds on the Brentwood Road. Kingsdean and the Dean Farm gradually absorbed all his interest, and he withdrew more and more from business. The managing clerk, Mr. Pointer, was as safe as a church tower. When I am gone, he will keep things snug for Jack, and you need not bother your head about them, Isabel, he said, when the knowledge that his days were numbered had been broken to him. Pointer is worth his weight in gold. If Isabel Compton had had her disappointments and her disillusions, Richard had not been without his private grievances, too. By nature, he was a man of peace, and these constant arguments with his high-spirited wife hurt and depressed him. He thought it hard that she would not leave him free to live the life he most loved. Women are kittle cattle, even the best of them, he would say to himself somewhat grumpily. What can Isabel want more? She has her flat at Westminster. I gave in to her about that, though I hate flats. I always feel like Mother Hubbard's dog, shut up in a big cupboard. She has her Victoria, and her Brougham, and some good diamonds. The shop that she loathes provides all these good things. Yet she can hardly bring herself to be civil to Pointer when I ask him to dinner. 
and resents his interest in Jack. Pointer and she never got on somehow. She treads on the poor old chap's corns with these pretty little feet of hers. But there, one cannot alter Isabel. And Richard would heave a heavy sigh but it may be doubted whether he ever thoroughly understood his wife's complex nature. Isabel liked her luxurious flat and her carriages and diamonds, but they could not satisfy her or appease her hunger and thirst for some dominating interest in work. If she could have been proud of her husband and sympathized in his pursuits and tastes, she would have asked nothing more of life. She would have starved beside him, uncomplaining in a garret. She would have borne cold and poverty and drudgery with a smile on her face. But mincing lane and diamonds? It was just giving her stones instead of bread. And Kingsdean, with its glorious views and well-proportioned rooms, and the Dean Farm, with its famous black cattle and cream-colored olderneys, were nothing to her. And by and by... Another trouble came to her. When Isabel Compton first became a mother, and when, in the quaint old biblical language, she knew that she had gotten a man from the Lord, her joy had been so excessive as almost to endanger her life. Mrs. Compton, if you do not keep quiet and calm, your baby must be taken into the next room, the doctor had said to her with assumed sternness for the uneven beats of the weak pulse alarmed him for the safety of the emotional young creature. But happily, that threat sobered her effectually. Maternity is a passion with some natures. It was so in Isabel Compton's case. Even her love for her husband paled a little beside her adoration of her boy. He is mine, my very own, she would whisper to herself in the night. My baby boy whom I shall mold and form and teach from the first. He shall have no teacher but his mother until he goes to school. I will get up the rudiments of Latin from the village schoolmaster. Richard shall not know. He would only laugh at me, but I mean to have my way in this. And as she rocked her infant in her feeble arms, Isabel had hours of exquisite happiness. The first jarring note was struck, when Richard quietly announced his intention of calling the child by his father's name. There must be another John Compton, Bell, he said, but I should like him to have your name too, John Murdoch Compton. That is euphonious enough to suit your ladyship, your ladyship being one of his pet names for her. But Isabel only looked at him with a dissatisfied pucker on her brow. I hope you are only joking, Richard, dear she said plaintively. You know how I hate the name of John. It is so plebeian. She spoke pettishly, but as usual, she rubbed him up the wrong way. Even peaceable, well-meaning men have obstinate fits sometimes. It is my favorite name, returned Richard sullenly, and there has always been a John Compton in every generation. When poor Jack died, Jack was his eldest brother, I vowed to myself that if I ever had a boy, I would call him after the dear fellow. Yes, and he will be Jack, too, returned Isabel with some bitterness, for she saw that Richard intended to have his way. Jack! Oh, it was hideous! 
there was a mastiff at the farm called Jack, and in their village there was a Jack Beddoes at the post office, and Jack Crompton, and little Jack Quain, the cowherd's boy. If she might call her son Murdoch, and then hope revived, though before long it was frustrated by Jack himself. Boy hates Murdoch. Me is Jack. Dad as Jack. And the baby rebel stamped his tiny foot angrily. Yes, as soon as he could lisp, Jack went over to the enemy. Dad as Jack soon proved himself to be his father's son. Poor Isabel. Her case was a hard one. Vainly did she strive to stamp her own thoughts, her own personality, on her idolized boy. He was Richard's second self, and except that he had his mother's bright dark eyes and brown skin, he bore no further resemblance to her. It could not be denied that Richard gloried in his boy's partisanship. From the hour that Jack could toddle beside him, they had been chums, and Dad and Dada was Jack's household divinity. "'Won't you stay with Mother, Jack?' Richard said to him once when he saw the sad, yearning look in his wife's eyes. "'Poor dear Mother will be so dull.' "'Yes, but she won't cry. Mother never cries.' And Jack took firm hold of his father's hand. "'Boy's coming with Dad.' And as usual, Jack had his way. Though Richard gave his wife an apologetic glance. "'He is a chip off the old block. He is a Compton. Every inch of him.' he said to himself, as the little lad toddled beside him, babbling about his pets, and Isabel, sitting lonely in her grand drawing room, was telling herself the same thing. He is Richard's boy, not mine. Already he takes after his father. There they go. He is chattering to Richard like a little magpie. Nothing would have induced him to stay with me, but I won't cry. No, you are right there, Jack. For long ago, Isabel had had to swallow her disinclination. Jack refused sturdily to answer to his second name. People who admired Mrs. Compton always said that it was a pity that Jack did not inherit his mother's beauty, and that with such good-looking parents, he should grow up such an ordinary young man. As a matter of fact, he closely resembled his paternal grandfather, old John Compton. He had a short and rather clumsily built figure, which was more remarkable for strength than grace, and in his early youth he certainly failed to carry himself well. When Isabel walked beside him up the church with her stately and queenly air and a certain indescribable grace of movement inherited from her Andalusian mother, people were always conscious of some slight shock. Jack was not handsome either. In spite of his beautiful dark eyes, his features were heavy and somewhat blunt, and he had a slow, quiet way of talking that irritated Isabel. And lastly, and this filled the cup of her humiliation, Jack was not clever. In fact, in his mother's opinion, he was a perfect dunce. When other children were reading fairy stories, Jack had only just mastered his letters. Reading without tears was a verbal mockery, for Jack's tears blotted every page long before he was six. 
Isabel, in despair, turned him over to the village schoolmaster and wept scalding tears at the thought of her hardly acquired Latin. It is no use, she said sorrowfully to Richard. I have done my best for Jack, but he will not learn. Perhaps Mr. Ackroyd will manage him better. And Richard agreed with her. It was the one point on which they did agree, their mutual anxiety for their boy's good. But alas, even in his father's eyes, Jack was an incorrigible dunce. He hated lessons, and even rugby failed to turn him out decently equipped for the battle of life. It could not be pleasant to any father to hear that his only child was deficient in brain power. Look here, Mr. Compton, the headmaster said to him. I have watched your boy very closely. He is a good lad. There is no vice in him. You and his mother will rejoice to know that. But it is no good sending him to Oxford. It will just be throwing your money away. He will not study, and what benefit will he derive from just keeping his chapels and rowing in the eight? These are rather expensive luxuries. If you want to waste money over him, let him see the world. That will open his eyes a little. His mother has her heart set on his going to Oxford, returned Mr. Compton slowly. There was an anxious frown on his face. His health had begun to break just then, and he was inclined to take dark views of things. And it was a bitter pill to swallow. His only son, his good lad, was the veriest dunce that had ever left a public school. With infinite trouble, he had scraped through a little Latin and a good deal of history and geography, but he could be taught little else. In fact, as Isabel had said with deep anguish of soul, Jack had defective brain power. He was slower than other boys. After a time, Richard Compton's good sense determined him to make the best of his disappointment. The deep affection between father and son only deepened as the years went on. As Jack expressed it, they were excellent chums. One evening, they were sitting together on the long terrace that stretched from end to end of the house. It overlooked the gardens, and from one point, a break in the shrubbery gave them a lovely peep of the church and village. Mrs. Compton had gone back to the house and was playing softly to herself in the dim light. But the two men had remained outside to finish their cigars and to enjoy the changing hues of the spring sunset. There was an indescribable feeling of peace and freshness pervading the whole scene. The quiet breadths of evening sky had a faint glow like the delicate blush on a maiden's cheek. One small star glittered on the edge of a bluish-gray cloud. They had been talking somewhat confidentially. Richard Compton had been explaining some business matter in which he was much interested, and had warmed very much to his subject, and Jack, a little bored and mystified, had been listening dutifully. "'I wish I were not such a duffer,' he said presently with a rueful smile. "'It puzzles me awfully sometimes to think how you ever came to have such a shallow-pated fellow for a son.' Mother is so clever, and as for you, Dad... But Richard only shook his head sadly. Don't call yourself names, Jack. It is bad form. We can't all be cast into the same mold. And when all is said and done, 
You are your father's son, and I don't know that I would change you, my lad. And here there was a pleasant light in Richard's eyes. I don't think mother would endorse that remark. And Jack frowned and sighed. Jack worshipped his beautiful mother. He thought there was no one like her, and it grieved him to the heart to know that he disappointed her. Then, at the sound of Jack's vexed sigh, Richard turned quickly and laid his hand on his son's arm. "'You must not mind her sharp speeches, Jack,' he said kindly. "'They mean nothing. You are just the apple of her eye and her one thought. Don't I remember as clearly as though it were yesterday?' coming in and seeing her hushing you to sleep by the nursery fire. It was a sight a man never forgets in his life. If only some great painter could have sketched it. Your mother was always a grand-looking woman, Jack, and by Jove, you were a fine little chap, too. I made quite a fool of myself with a pair of you that day. But there, I was never clever enough to satisfy her. She ought to have married a member of Parliament, or the Solicitor General, or a big journalist, or someone whose name is always before the public. Mincing Lane was not in her line at all. And as for the Dean, and here Richard gave a whimsical grimace, I am afraid I take after you, Father, in one thing. I hate the flat. And then again, there was a twinkle of amusement in the elder man's eyes. Yes, we agree there, but my boy, there is one lesson you must set yourself to learn. When a man marries, he is not altogether his own master. It must be give and take, bear and forbear, live and let live. Oh, I could write you a list of aphorisms, but there are some things you must work out for yourself. When I am gone... Here his voice grew a little solemn. Your mother must be your first care. Give in to her in little things, and hold your own in big ones. Now we are on the subject, we may as well go on. There will be no need for you to bother your head about the shop. Pointer will manage to keep things together. And by and by, in five or six years, you might take him into partnership. He draws a handsome salary now, but a partnership in Compton and Son would be like a ducal coronet to a needy younger son and would make the old boy happy. You were never cut out for a businessman, Jack, and as I have feathered your nest well, there is no need for you to trouble. Have you any plans of your own? Jack's eyes began to brighten. Then he drew Ben Bolt, his favorite fox terrier, between his knees and began patting him nervously. There is one thing I should like, Dad, to go round the world and take Ben Bolt with me. There is no reason why you should not have your wish, but not just yet, my boy. I could not part with you. For already Richard Compton knew that a longer journey and a more distant haven were before him. All in good time, Jack, but you must stop with your mother for a little. Then... As the tears rose to the young man's eyes at this illusion, he added quickly, with that dread of a scene that is instinctive in a well-bred Englishman, Don't let us meet trouble halfway, Jack, my boy. We will have some good times first, please God. Remember, whatever your mother may say, 
that I am perfectly satisfied with you. We were chums when you were in red shoes and white woolen gaiters, and we are chums still. And then, with a half-tender, half-humorous smile on his face, he held out his hand to his son. But when Jack had left him to take his dogs for their evening run, Richard Compton sat on still, looking out on the dark violet patches that had replaced the pink glow. How could he fail to be satisfied, he said to himself. Could any young man be more manly and honest and clean living than his boy? He had never told a lie in his life. He had never played a dirty trick or done a mean thing. Were a good heart and an unstained conscience of less value than a clever brain? And again, if his Latin was nil and his spelling defective, could any young fellow of twenty ride better or straighter? He was a capital shot, too, and could swim like a fish, and he always scored splendidly at cricket. There was no game, football, golf, or tennis, at which Jack did not excel, and he had other capabilities. He was a capital carpenter and could beat out a horseshoe and shoe his mare as well as the village blacksmith, and he carved exquisitely, and even Mrs. Compton was proud of the cabinet he had made for her. As a colonist or pioneer, he would have made his fortune, but many of his gifts were thrown away at Sandalands. Jack ought to be a settler or backwoodsman, Mr. Compton was saying to himself, and then his wife joined him. Are you not sitting out too long, Richard? she said anxiously. It is only April, remember, and the evenings are chilly. Then Richard Compton threw down the stump of his cigar and rose from his seat. You are right, dear, he said quietly, and I was just getting a little stiff. Let us take a turn on the terrace before we go in. Jack is letting the dogs loose. And indeed, the joyous barking of half a dozen excited creatures was distinctly audible. We have had a rather serious talk, Isabel, the boy and I. I have told him that he need not go to Mincing Lane, except now and then to look at the accounts, and the pointer will look after your interests. When you can spare him, you must let him have his wish and go round the world. You need not fear to trust him, and if you take my advice, you will just give him his head and let him choose his own hobbies. But to this, his wife made no reply. She had long ceased to argue any point with him. Only when her opinion differed, it was her habit to preserve absolute silence. Richard was not certain that he did not prefer the old arguments. They had provoked and wearied him, but they were less chilling than this black silence that seemed to wall up their intercourse. I hope your ladyship does not disagree with me, he said with an attempt at playfulness as he took her arm. If I do not agree, I will not argue with you, she returned with unwanted gentleness. I never want to trouble you in that way again. And then she induced him to go indoors. When her husband died, Isabel Compton was inconsolable for a long time. And other widows, who had mourned more soberly and decorously, were a little inclined to speak of her extravagant grief as wanting in resignation. But in reality, a good deal was due to remorse. Isabel had loved her husband, but somehow she had failed in her wife's duty. Constant friction between those whom God had joined together 
was not only undesirable, but absolutely wrong. If she had only been more forbearing, if she had only understood his limitations from the first and adapted herself to suit them, but all their married life she had been trying to fit a round thing into a square hole and had to thank herself for the total failure. I failed with Richard. I was never good enough to him, she said to herself with bitter tears, but I will do better with Jack. Ah, if one could only carry out one's good intentions. But human nature is weak and prone to failure. Before many months had passed, the old arbitrary spirit had awakened again, and Jack's affection and generosity were sorely tried. Give in to her little things and hold your own in big ones, had been Richard Compton's advice to his son. But it somehow seemed to Jack as if his mother wished to deprive him of all liberty. Perhaps her sorrow and loneliness made her unreasonably exacting, but nothing he could do seemed to please her. She was satirical on the subject of his carpentering and accused him of taking bread out of an honest workman's mouth and laughed at his clumsy horseshoes. The hours he spent at the farm were a perpetual grievance in her eyes, and his dislike to the flat and a civilized life was clownishness, the vulgar attribute of a Tony Lumpkin. Jack is so perverse. He is as sulky and obstinate as a bear. When one really thwarts him, she said to her great confidant, the little sister, for something of the nature of friendship had grown up between these two women, dissimilar as they were. Oh, I know what you are going to say, that Jack is really sweet-tempered and never says cross things to me, however sharp I may be with him. Don't I know that, too? But do you not understand, Claire? how the opposition benches obstruct a bill that they do not mean to pass? Well, that is what Jack does. He says nothing, only he looks firm and then goes and does the very thing I have begged him not to do. That was what Richard did. I never got my way with either of them. I never shall. But there was another speech very often on her lips. If I could only change places with Miriam Earle. For, as all Sandy Lands knew, Miriam Earle had a very clever son who was making his mark as a London doctor. And to the mistress of Kingsdean, the name of Felix Earle was as Naboth's vineyard to the wicked king of Israel. Thou shalt not covet, sounded in Isabel Compton's ears every Sunday. Nevertheless, in the naughtiness of her secret heart, she envied Miriam Earle. End of section five.